Hey there, humanoids. This is David Shoemaker here with a very exciting announcement. Your favorite wrestling podcast feed, The Ringer Wrestling Show, is now going daily. And you can hang out with me and Kaz on Mondays and Thursdays for The Masked Man Show. And you can join me, Peter Rosenberg, alongside stack guy Greg and Dip every Tuesday with Cheap Heat. And on Fridays, I'll welcome a friend or special guest from the world of wrestling. And on Wednesdays, we have a very special new show called Wednesday Worldwide that you're going to want to check out. Pay-per-view reaction, one-of-a-kind interviews, fantasy booking, talking about bagels. That's what we do here on the Ringer Wrestling Show. Follow the show now on Spotify and do us a favor. Give us five stars. And do us another favor and uh, stay mage. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available. And listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. Mark Daniels is going to join us from Mass Live. Great stuff from Mark on his story about Mac Jones. That story was published on Monday. So we got into what went wrong on the Patriots side of this with Mac and also the mistakes that Mac made and some of the things that he was incapable of doing, things that you would expect a starting quarterback at the NFL to be able to do. So we'll get into that with Mark. Also got into the coordinator search for the Patriots and all that stuff as well. And Bill Belichick, of course, without a job. So he got into all those things. And, of course, we got into the number three pick as well. We're recording this part of the pod, though, late night after the Celtics escaped the Pacers. Now, they caught some breaks in this game. Tyrese Halliburton did not play in the fourth. He was on a minutes restriction. They were also without Matherin, who played well against the Celtics earlier this season. And McConnell didn't play in this game either, and McConnell's just a pest. I mean, the guy is annoying every time he plays the Celtics, so I was kind of glad he didn't play in this game to, quite frankly, put it lightly. That guy just annoys the shit out of me when he plays. No disrespect to the guy. Like, he's earned himself a career in the NBA. He's just annoying to play against. But anyway, the Celtics, they let the Pacers back in this game with that terrible third quarter. So before we get into what happened in the third, the final two minutes of the game in the fourth quarter... 
they somehow let him back in it again. Like the Pacers only down three points late in this game somehow where it felt like the Celtics had it wrapped up. So good news is huge defensive plays down the stretch from a couple of the, the Celtics. 127-124. White has an amazing block on Aaron Neesmith when he's looking to shoot a three. And then Tatum blocks Miles Turner where Turner gets the ball off the inbound at the block and Tatum comes a comes off his defender, helps, and blocks Turner at the rim. So great block there. So that makes the score. It's still at that point, 127-124. And then late in the game, Tatum had, or that was late in the game too, but Tatum had that block on Neesmith with 11.1 seconds left when the Celtics had a five-point lead. So yeah, it was sort of aggravating that the Pacers still had a chance to win this game late, but some nice defensive plays by... Derek White, who's a first-team all-defensive player, or I should say is going to be a first-team all-defensive player. Maybe he won't this year, but he's definitely capable of being on the all-defensive team again. I would expect him to be on that team again, but Tatum is definitely a high-quality defender in this league. I think at some point he's going to make an all-defensive team, so great job by both those guys late in this game. But it just felt like this was too close for comfort, because if you look at the first half of this game, the Celtics put up 81 points. Dick Leip from the NBC Sports Boston broadcast and the 98.5, the Sports Hub broadcast, he had the stat that Dick uh, Dick Leip did that it is the most points the Celtics have had in a first half or in a half since 1982. So it's been a while. So you look at those numbers in the first half, 51 possessions, 81 points, as we mentioned. That's an offensive rating just south of 159. They were 30 of 47 from the field. That's 63.8%. 18 of 26 from two-point territory, 69.2%. 12 of 21 from three-point territory, 57.1%. And if you look at the league, Indiana leads the league with a 121.2 offensive rating. Again, the Celtics were at 158.8 to be exact, right under 159. The field goal percentage, 63.8. The league best is Indiana at 50.6. And if you look at some of the other numbers, the two-point percentage numbers, Indiana leads the league at 58.6. The C's were at 69.2%. And then if you look at the three-point numbers, 57.1% from the Celtics, the Clippers lead the league at 39.9. So you were playing way better than the league's best offense in that first half. And then what transpires in the third quarter was the Celtics go 10 of 23 from the floor They had just 25 points on 25 possessions, which is 100 offensive rating, which would be the last in the league. Nobody's worse than 100. I mean, that's an archaic offense, right? You got to go back to the last decade when we saw offenses like that. So they went from this elite offense, like out of this world great, to the worst offense in the NBA in the third quarter. So now this third quarter thing has become... A real issue because at the beginning of the season they had this problem and then it felt like they solved that problem especially when they went out west and now it's been back over the past couple of games if you look at it really over the past couple of weeks they've had trouble in these third quarters they got outscored by if you look at it they got outscored by 12 of course in this third quarter against this Pacers team and this is not new as we mentioned so on the season entering this game tonight 45.7 percent they shoot In the third quarter, that's 26. Their three-point percentage is 36.3%, which is 22nd. The offensive rating is 115.9, which is 22nd. The defensive rating is still good, 112.7, which is 7th. And the net rating is 3.2, which is 14th. 
if you look at the total entering this game, it was a plus 21. So they had only outscored teams by 21 points the entire season in the third quarter, which was 14th in the NBA. That seems a little bit ridiculous for a team that has by far the best record in the NBA right now. It's kind of shocking that they've only outscored teams by that number. And in this game, you get outscored again. So that number is down to nine in terms of the Celtics have only outscored teams by nine points all season long in the third quarter. This game tonight, they start on the Pacers doing 18-4 to run, and they're back in this game when it should have been over, right? So I don't understand this, because if you look at the numbers in the first quarter, 121.3 offensive rating, which is second, so a 5.4 point per 100 difference, so that's massive. And also in terms of the rankings in the NBA, that's a, what, a 20 ranking dip-off, if you will. The net rating of 16.8, so outscoring teams by 16.8 points per 100 possessions in the first quarter. That's a 13.6 per 100 drop-off when you look at the third quarter and you drop 13 position points, if you will, in terms of the ranking in the NBA. I mean, first quarter, they're the best team. They're first in terms of net rating. And if you look at the total, it was 203 entering tonight. So they had outscored teams by 203 points in the first quarter entering tonight. Add another 10 tonight, you get to 213. So if you look at that number, it's 204 points in terms of the difference, in terms of how much the Celtics have outscored teams in the first quarter compared to the third quarter. And I just don't understand this, right? Because your starters are out there. So is it you're just up big and you sort of let go of the rope in a lot of these games? Because the Celtics have had big leads throughout the season. It's the reason they're number one in the NBA in net rating. But their pace, maybe this is one thing to look at, is they go from 11th to 18th. And then if you look at the shot attempts, they go from 8th to 22nd. So dropping significantly there, or I should say they go from 8th in shot attempts to 18th. So they're getting fewer shots up, but they're playing at a much slower pace naturally by getting fewer shots up. But it's just sort of aggravating because you have your starters out there. You have your guys out there. Why can't they play well? Why can't they bring the necessary energy after halftime? That they bring in the first quarter. It's just something to look out for because we've seen in the past the Celtics, if you go back to two years ago, the finals run, the third quarter was a massive issue against Miami in the Eastern Conference Finals. Now that year, ultimately, the Celtics would, of course, advance to the NBA Finals, but it's just an issue that I really, I don't have a good explanation. I mean, I can look at some of the numbers, like I told you, the pace, the shot attempts are down compared to the first quarter, but it's something, not to make this too simplistic, they just have to be better. You, you can't be doing this in the third quarter, right? Clean it up. Okay, then the other problem in this one, and yes, you didn't have Al, you didn't have Cornette, so you were short big men. I thought Kata actually gave them really good minutes. He plays with a lot of energy. Obviously, he can't play in every matchup, but in a matchup like this, he certainly can. I thought he gave them a good boost off the bench, had a couple of nice dunks off Jalen assists early in this game. But the Celtics gave up 17 offensive rebounds in the first three quarters. Atlanta leads the league at 13.1. Again, Indiana had 17 in the first three quarters. So they had almost four offensive rebounds more than the team that leads the NBA in just the first three quarters. Indiana, if you look at it on the season, is 20th. They're not even a good offensive rebounding team. They're 20th at (laughs) 10.3. The Celtics only give up, or I should say the Celtics give up 11.1, which is not a great number. It's 24th. And the good thing is they did clean it up in the fourth quarter. They only gave up two, but this is something that significantly hurts you in this game. This game was way closer than it needed to be because the Celtics are getting killed on the offensive glass. Because if you look at the numbers, the Pacers had 108 shots 
compared to the Celtics in this game, who they end up finally taking a hundred, or excuse me, the Pacers take 108 shots, and the Celtics in this game take just 87 shots. So they took 21 more shots than the Celtics. Now, the Celtics did get to the free throw line more. They took seven more free throws. But still, if you add up the shot attempts and the free throw attempts, it's an extra 14 in favor of Indiana. And that's because you couldn't get defensive rebounds. So in a game that the Celtics shot 54% from the field, and if you also look at the numbers in this game, it's 54% from the field for the Celtics. And then if you look at the Pacers, they end up shooting in this game 46.3% from the field, so almost eight percentage points better. Then you look at the three-point line, the Celtics shoot 47.2%, and the Pacers shoot 30.8%. So north of 16 percentage points higher, the Celtics from deep. So eight points in terms of, eight percentage points in terms of the field goal percentage, 16 percentage points as it pertains to the three-point percentage, and you get more free throw attempts, and you have to sweat out a win because you gave up so many more shot attempts to the Pacers because you couldn't rebound the basketball, okay? So this should not have happened. You should not be getting killed on the boards this way. So this has got to be a major emphasis going forward, these two things. Don't let these two situations happen again. The third quarter issues, like you got to address that and figure that out in some capacity. And then secondarily, outside of the third quarter issues, You can't be getting killed on the glass. And I'm not saying this happens all the time with the Celtics in terms of the glass. Like the third quarter thing is way more of an issue. But you made this game more competitive because of two issues. You weren't ready in the third quarter. The Pacers took it to you. And then secondarily, you couldn't get a defensive rebound in this game for the first three quarters until you dialed up your defensive rebounding in the fourth quarter. So this is just stuff where, and especially if they get killed on the glass again, this is going to be the scouting report. Like, hey, this team has the second-ranked defense in the NBA. They're an elite defensive team. We know they're an elite offensive team. We got to come up with strategies to try to beat them, right? Like, you got to come up with underdog David strategies, so to speak. Now, offensive rebounding has become more popular in the NBA over the past few years. Like, now the numbers tell you, hey, you should actually be crashing more because for so long, teams wouldn't crash. Like, the Spurs... We're never crashing for years, just get back on defense. But now teams do crash more. So not that it's out of the question. Teams decide to go after the offensive boards. But if the Celtics show this weakness where they're not rebounding the basketball well on the defensive side, it's something that teams may try to attack. Okay, so those are the two sort of concerns I had in this game because there's a lot of good. It just, this team is one of the best teams in the NBA. We all believe, I mean, they're the favorites right now on FanDuel to win the NBA championship. So when they have sort of these glaring issues, we got to sort of point them out because, yes, they're a great team. They're a wagon, but it's this type of stuff that at times can just be like, what are they doing? And I get it's the dog days of the NBA season and all that, but this is a game that the Celtics should have won relatively easily, and they sort of shot themselves in the foot. Like, I don't even give much credit to Indiana for hanging in on this game. It's just the Celtics got to be better on the glass, and you got to be ready to play in the third quarter. All right, so getting back Porzingis certainly is nice, isn't it? Now, he didn't shoot the ball particularly well, but he did finish with 17 and 12, and he got off to a really quick start, right? The dunk off a Tatum drive, top of the key three, then he gets a bucket inside, and then we saw the weapon, right? I talked about the other day the cheat code that Porzingis is. So late in this game, a lot of the action was through Porzingis. 120 to 112 the scores, you need a bucket, he gets to the line, he got a switch on Neesmith. Once he got switched on to Neesmith, or once the Celtics got Neesmith switched on to Porzingis, I should say, 
Jalen throws it right into him. It's out of that Jalen and Porzingis pick and roll. Great job by Jalen. Great job by Porzingis. When Porzingis has a smaller defender on him like Aaron Neesmith, Neesmith has two choices. Either Porzingis is going to shoot right over you and score because where he got that was right near the block. So he's either going to shoot right over you or you're going to have to follow him. He chose to follow him and Porzingis hit both free throws. So that's just an advantage you have when Porzingis is on the floor late. You can seek out those mismatches. You can get him the ball in the post where he's the most efficient post player in the NBA. And then after that, he's going to screen Jalen. And because they don't want the smaller player switched on to Porzingis, they foul Porzingis trying to get around his screen. He gets to the free throw line. Now, he did miss one of those free throws, but still he makes it 123 to 114. So that's another thing is they're panicking. The mismatch that Porzingis provides, it's forcing the defense to make a mistake there. They foul and they send Porzingis to the line because they're so frightened that Porzingis is going to get a smaller defender on him. Then they post Porzingis. This is a great job by Joe. It's 125 to 118. They post Porzingis out of a timeout. They get the ball right to him. He hits a little turnaround, makes it 127-118. That's the weapon we've been missing the past couple of games when we're watching the Celtics team. Nice to see him get that opportunity in this game. And nice to see Joe calling that play for him late out of a timeout. Love that by Joe. So I know we make a lot about, or we hear a lot about the timeouts, the lack thereof with Joe. That's a nice use of his time out there getting the ball to Kristaps Porzingis. Okay, awesome Tatum game, 37-7, and 12 of 19, 4 of 9 from deep. Oh, one note. I did not know this. Abby Chen on the broadcast Mention the fact that Tatum has the second highest selling jersey in the NBA. I mean, that surprised me. I get it. The Celtics are an historic franchise. And part of it, too, is like you watch TV. Tatum is in so many commercials, whether it's Ruffles, whether it's Subway. They have that Jordan brand commercial. He is all over the place as it pertains to commercials. And this is a good thing, right? Like you want your superstars to be here. You're not going to be much bigger anywhere else. Like, you're getting plenty of opportunities. I don't know how many more NBA players, or I don't know how many NBA players have more commercials right now than Jason Tatum. So that's kind of cool. Just I know that's kind of a nerdy thing to point out, but it is kind of cool that he's the second highest selling jersey in the NBA. So in this game, Tatum, 12 points in the paint. Only 16 players are north of 12 points in the paint on the season. Tatum is 48th at 9.4. So what Tatum realized in this game is he knew the assignment, okay? where the Pacers don't have a lot of long-rangey defenders, and the Pacers on the season give up the most points per game in the paint at 59.7. So even though the Celtics as a team did not have good numbers in terms of their points in the paint, Tatum did. And what we saw for the majority of this game, now he had it going, like his shot was really falling tonight, but what we saw is he was hunting switches all night. And when he got a big on him like Jalen Smith, he goes by Jalen Smith. When he has a smaller defender on him like Neesmith, he goes by Neesmith. And he finishes. So by the time you get to halftime, Tatum has 23 on 10 of 12 shooting. And the big thing in this one is just Tatum overpowering guys, knowing, hey, this team is terrible protecting in the paint. I'm just going to get downhill and get to my spots. And he was outstanding doing that. And one of the things I noticed in this game is if you look at it, Tatum on twos in this game was 8 of 10. So 80%, easy math there. And that's one of the things that is tailed off for Tatum. If you go from... Basically, December to now, he was shooting 51.5% on twos. Okay, that's not a good number. Because if you look at the numbers from the beginning of the season, where he's at 27.7 points per game, since December, he is at 26.3 points per game. But the big difference I want to reference here is the two-point shooting. So, 
from the beginning of the season until the end of November, Tatum on two, 60.2% on 10.9 attempts. That number, as I mentioned, since the start of December is 51.5%, which is an 11, which is on 11.1 attempts. So we're talking about a significant dip off in terms of the percentage points there, right? Almost nine percentage points as we're talking about the dip off that Tatum has on his two point shooting since the start of December. Now, the good thing for Tatum is he's been able to 26.3 compared to 27.7. It's not a big dip off in terms of the scoring. The way he's been able to make up for that, 6.3 free throw attempts per game from the start of the season through the end of November. From the start of December until this game tonight, he was at 7.8. So that's how he sort of made up for some of this because the three-point shooting is pretty much the same. It's the two-point shooting that has dipped off. And part of that is his long mid-rangers. So prior to tonight's game, you look at the numbers at the beginning of the season. So the beginning of the year through the end of November on long mid-rangers, this is via cleaning the glass, which means outside of four feet, but inside of 14 feet. He was 25 of 46, 54.3%, 95th percentile. And those were 13% of his shots, which is a high number, 89th percentile. Those numbers since the start of December, he's just 28 of 74. So that's 37.8% compared to that 54.3%. It's in the 38th percentile. And actually, the frequency is up. He's actually taking 15% of his shots in the long mid-range, which is in the 93rd percentile. So the attempts are going up, but the percentage has dropped from 54.3% to 37.8%. So maybe having this opportunity today against just an Indiana team that gives up the most twos in the entire NBA, they do this by design, they give up the most two-point makes in the NBA, maybe this can get Tatum back at a rhythm from two-point territory because that's where his numbers have sort of dipped off a little bit since the start of December. Actually, I shouldn't say a little bit, they've dipped off a ton. He's over 60% from two, and now he's around 51%. So maybe that's something that gets him going from that area of the court. He's been awesome. I'm, I'm just pointing something out where I felt like his two-point shot was really good at the beginning of the season, and now it's kind of dipped off. All right, Derek White officially out of the slump. We saw the beginning of it last night, but he was awesome again in this one. He finishes with 24, and he had the three ball going. He had the floater game going. He had basically everything going. If you go back to the last two quarters he played, if you take the fourth quarter from last night and you take the first quarter in this game tonight, those two quarters, because in the first quarter of this game, 15 points on six of nine, shooting three of four. So you combined his fourth quarter and first quarter from tonight, 11 of 14, 73.3%, six of eight from deep, 75%, 28 points. So he was ice cold for what, three and a half games. And then all of a sudden he heats up in the fourth quarter last night and he carries that over to the game against the Pacers. So he was awesome in this game. And then Jalen, he had 25 points. I actually, one of the things, one of the critiques I would have of this game, I, I mean, I mentioned the rebounding in the third quarter, but just from a schematic perspective and a matchup perspective, I would have liked to see Jalen on Siaka more. We've seen Jalen so often lately taking on the other team's best wing player. It was a lot of Drew on Siakam. And I felt like Siakam just sort of had his way with Drew. Now the Tracking data hasn't finalized yet, but it felt like he was just getting Drew sort of on the block, backing him down, and there was nothing really Drew could do because of the size he was giving up. So I was surprised they didn't put Jalen on Siakam more because Jalen's been getting those assignments lately. But anyway, overall, I talked about Tatum understanding the assignment that, hey, this team is terrible in terms of the protection in the paint. They give up a ton of points in the paint. Tatum took advantage of that. 
Well, Jalen in this game took advantage of the other weakness that the Pacers have. They foul like crazy. They give up 27.4 free throw attempts per game, which is 30th in the NBA. Now, in this game, the Celtics didn't get to the free throw line a ton, just 22 attempts, but Jalen took eight of them. So he took 36%, north of 36% of the Celtics attempts at the free throw line. So this is what I like about your two best players, right? Tatum says, okay, here's the weakness that they have in terms of they don't protect the paint. They're bad at defending the two. And it's kind of by design because they have to win the math game because their defensive personnel is not great. They want to take a bunch of threes and they'll give up twos. So Tatum took advantage of, hey, okay, you're going to give up twos. I'm just going to go crazy and go eight of 10 from two point territory. Jalen says, hey, these guys can't defend without fouling. I'm bigger than most of the players on the team. I'll just be more physical than they are and get to the free throw line. And he did that. So I do like that aspect. Okay, one more thing before we get to Mark Daniels. So the Celtics, of course, they'll get ready for the Lakers, who lost again. They lost to Atlanta. Now, they didn't have Anthony Davis, Achilles, hip soreness, whatever they're calling it now with Anthony Davis. So, of course, he's been healthier this year than he has in most years. But, of course, they lost to the Rockets the previous game after the huge win against the Warriors so the Lakers come into the Garden on Thursday night. That'll be a fun game, but it's a game the Celtics certainly should win. That Lakers team, not in a good spot right now. Okay, but I did want to get to this real briefly. So if you haven't seen it, multiple people have now reported that the Fenway Sports Group is closing in on a deal, part of the partnership with the PGA Tour and Live, and the state could approach $3 billion in terms of the money that they'd be putting into this. So Remember, John Henry couldn't go to Winter Weekend because he had some sort of a conflict. Maybe this is the conflict that he had where he was working on this type of deal. So it just feels like, at least to me, that the Red Sox helped John Henry, etc., and the ownership group helped them. And look, they did a lot to help win championships and all of that. I'll never take that away from them. But the Red Sox really helped them sort of grow their business profile, right, to all these other teams they own now. And it almost feels like the Red Sox are forgotten, right, where they have all this other stuff going on right now. It's just really difficult to defend them right now in terms of the money they're not spending. Chris Smith from Mass Live had the note that by their, essentially, they told us they were going to have a payroll that was lower than last year. Sam Kennedy, it's literally, he said that. So even if you go by what they were saying, $225 million, you're still 36 to 37 million left to spend in the Celtics, the Celtics, the Red Sox haven't spent that money, right? So that's another thing that aggravates you is, okay, well, you tell us you care so much about this team, yet you're not spending. Sam Kennedy had to sort of walk back his comments, but he was upset. He said that people shouldn't be calling us liars about spending money. Well, we're kind of seeing it right now, right? And the latest is Justin Turner, who you could argue, and I would argue before this offseason began, that he wasn't, now we had Milliken on last week, he wanted Turner back, but at the beginning of the offseason, you could have justified not bringing Turner back because when he played in the field last year, he ended up dealing with the heel issue. And it's tough to make him your everyday DH because you have other guys that you may need to DH. So you could sort of, you could understand why at the beginning of the offseason, they wouldn't bring him back. But that was under the assumption that they were going to get a legitimate bona fide right-handed power hitter, right? Or some right-handed hitter in the lineup. And I'm not counting Tyler O'Neill. I'm talking about the Teoscar Hernandez types. But now that we're at this point, it did make sense to bring Turner back because he didn't do anything to sort of give you stability in terms of a right-handed hitter. And one of the underrated parts about Justin Turner 
is he is a professional hitter and he's a clutch hitter. And if you look at it on the season last year, 77 RBIs with runners in scoring position, first on the Red Sox. He saw 4.27 pitches per per plate appearance, seventh in Major League Baseball. So that tells you he's giving you a good at bat, okay? Quality at bat. And you have a ton of guys on this team that strike out a ton and that don't walk. Justin Turner is going to give you a good at bat. And then if you look at high leverage situations, right, where we're talking about really with win probability impacting winning, 23 RBIs in high leverage situations last season, tied for 14th in Major League Baseball. The slug was 561, 21st in Major League Baseball. The isolated power was 246, which is 27. So that's just taking the batting average or taking the slugging percentage, you minus the batting average. That tells you that he's doing damage when he ranks 27th in isolated power. So he's a professional hitter. He's a clutch hitter. He's a tough at bat. And you've now removed him from the lineup and you haven't replaced him, right? You thought that, okay, you would have had that done before you let Turner go to the Blue Jays. Not that it was a trade, but you had plenty of time. Turner was hanging around Boston. If you wanted him, you could have signed him. Okay, but the issue here is you didn't do anything else. You didn't get the guy before Turner left. And that's what's going to aggravate Red Sox fans here. If you had signed Teoscar Hernandez, Red Sox fans would not be as upset with this situation. A lot of them would understand why, hey, let's bring in some power to play right field. And Justin Turner, at this point in his career, you can play him a little bit in the field, but really he's mainly a DH like he was last year. You worry about him staying healthy that way. He was injured at the end of the season, as we all know. So now, though, that you haven't sort of filled his spot, it just it's another thing that aggravates you about this team, that they just... You have no idea what they're doing. And I'll even go back to last year, and I get it's different front offices. But remember, at the trading deadline, okay, there was a deal out there. The Marlins were pissed. They thought the deal was done. Bunch of different people in Miami reported on this. Alex Spear from The Globe reported on this, that essentially Edward Cabrera was on the table for Justin Turner. The Marlins were trying to make a run, and they did make a run. They wanted a right-handed bat. They wanted Justin Turner. But what transpired was the Red Sox, Heim, Bloom, et cetera, said, no, we're not. They ultimately decided, no, we're not making the deal with Edward Cabrera on the table. Edward Cabrera, massive upside. Expected at batting average against 199, 94th percentile. Ground ball rate, 55.7%, 91st percentile. 96.2 miles per hour as it pertains to his fastball, 86th percentile. Now, the issue is, the reason that you could get him for Justin Turner is he has control issues, a 15.2% walk rate, which is in the first percentile. So he's one of the guys that has horrible command, right? But hey, this is a young pitcher with a filthy changeup that opponents hit just 186 against, a silly curveball that opponents hit just 185 against with a 38% whiff rate. So 38% of the times guys are swinging at Cabrera's curveball, they're missing. And you look at his whiff rate overall, 30.9% whiff rate, 83rd percentile. So almost 31% of times that guys swing at his pitches, they're coming up with air. So this guy has nasty stuff. And here's the issue. The Red Sox didn't do anything at the trading deadline. And Justin Turner, he had the option on his contract. So if you were in this rebuilding stage, and obviously ownership had this plan, they weren't going to fucking spend, okay? We all know they weren't going to spend this offseason. We're all finding this out now. Now, they lied to us. They told us they were going to spend, but they haven't done shit, okay? So they told us that they were going to spend. They didn't. So if that was the case, they knew they weren't going to do this, right? They knew they weren't going to spend. 
Now we were all hoping that they would, but they knew, okay, this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna cut the payroll. We're not gonna spend a ton of money. What we're gonna try to do is we're gonna try to blame everything on High and Bloom and hope bringing in Craig Breslow, former World Series champion, we'll get the fan base all excited. That's how we'll do it, but we won't spend. So if you weren't going to spend, the ownership group told us they were cutting payroll. If you were not going to do this, why didn't you trade Justin Turner at the trading deadline? Why didn't you tell Haim to do that when you had Edward Cabrera on the table? Who, look, maybe he never turns out to be a great pitcher, but it's worth it if you're just going to let Justin Turner walk at the end of the season. So all this stuff, they just have no idea what they're doing. And I shouldn't even put it that way. They have an idea what they're doing. They just don't care about the team anymore the way they once did. I don't know how anybody else, Sam Kennedy, whatever wants to say, I don't know how they defend this anymore. They don't care the way they used to care. And we as a fan base want to see good quality baseball or even them just trying and they're not trying and they just, there's like the moves they make, they don't relate to one another, okay? Not trading J.D. Martinez. Think about that. Two years ago, they don't trade J.D. Martinez. It's a last place team, okay? They get nothing for J.D. Martinez. They let him walk at the end of the season. I, I mean, you get, get like competitive compensatory picks, all that the different stuff is, uh, pertains to the draft. But you get my point. J.D. Martinez walks. Now, Justin Turner, what the hell was he on the team for at the end of the season? Okay, it just, all these moves, they don't make sense. They don't align. It's like everything they do is for PR at that specific time, and they've been caught up in so many lies. It's just annoying. Like, oh yeah, we're in on Yamamoto, okay. But it really, here's the thing I would say to them is... Right now, people are mad, okay, because winter weekend, if you couldn't embarrass yourself any more than you already did, Tom Warner's, we talked about the article that he did with Sean McAdam. He made himself look worse. He went to winter weekend. He looked even more like a clown. Sam Kennedy, I, if I was him, I wouldn't talk to anybody for months. I mean, he just embarrasses himself anytime he goes near a microphone, anytime he goes anywhere near a reporter. It's just embarrassing. Stop doing it. You're not doing yourself any favors. So... But you start to think about this is now people are mad. You know what's going to happen in August? You know what's going to happen in September? Heck, if you're not good in July, there is going to be apathy. And nobody's going to care about you because of the way that you've led on the fan base, the way that you've lied to the fan base. Nobody is going to care about your team. That's what's going to happen. And that is so unfair to people in this market that want to go to the games all the time. But hey, you know what? They're all set because they get the student prices in terms of the ticket. So you'll you'll be good with that with the student prices. It's just a joke. And it just I know I continually get worked up about this throughout the offseason, but it's something new every day with these guys. And eventually, you know what? They're gonna be ignored, unfortunately. I love the Red Sox. They have me. I watch pretty much every baseball game that the Red Sox play. I pretty much watch every game, okay, because I'm a sucker. But fans want to embrace this team. And the ownership group has decided now. They don't want to embrace the team anymore. That's just where they're at. Now, hey, they go out there, they sign a starter. I mean, Montgomery's still on the market. Snell's not on the market. I'd be glad to take my comments back, but I don't foresee that happening, and I'll give them credit if they do. Okay, so coming up next, Mark Daniels from Mass Live. We'll get into everything that went wrong with Mac Jones and the Patriots. And also, one thing I should mention, we recorded with Mark earlier today. It's before Ben Johnson took his name out of the running for the Washington commander's job. So we talked about Vrabel briefly at the end when we we're talking about Bill Belichick and him not getting a job. So just keep that in mind that Ben Johnson had not 
taken his name out of that because Rabel could now catch catch on with Washington. He hasn't interviewed there yet, but maybe they decided to go in the Vrabel direction. So coming up next, you'll hear from Mark Daniels from Mass Live. Last year at the Super Bowl, Rob Gronkowski went wide left on FanDuel's Kick of Destiny. Now he's back for Kick of Destiny 2. And this time you can play along. All you have to do is choose if Gronk will make or miss. I'm going to say that Gronk makes it this time. I know that you've seen the commercials. He's doing a lot of training. And secondarily, Gronk did not win the first Super Bowl he played in. Remember, he's banged up with the ankle situation against the Giants. The Patriots get back against the Seahawks. He wins that Super Bowl. So I'm saying the same thing happens here. Get your free pick in right now because if you're right, you'll win a share of $10 million in bonus bets. It doesn't matter if you're new to FanDuel or already have an account. Everyone can get in on the action when Gronk takes his shot and redemption before Super Bowl 58. Whether you're a team make or team miss, just head on over to FanDuel Sportsbook app to get your pick in. It's absolutely free. Then tune in before the game to see Gronk's kick live. Just visit FanDuel.com Pike to sign up. You'll win a share of $10 million in bonus bets if you're right. Make every moment more with FanDuel, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Must be 21 plus in president select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit theringer.com slash RG. No purchase necessary. 10 million prize pool to be split equally among all participants who made the correct pick. Prize issued as is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. Restrictions apply. See full terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now from Mass Live, it is Mark Daniels, has an article up right now that came out on Monday with Chris Mason and Karen Garrigan inside the fall of Mac Jones, how a once promising Patriots quarterback unraveled. Mark, thanks so much for the time, man. We really appreciate it. Hey, Brian. Thanks for having me. Yeah, anytime. So let's start off with one of the juicy nuggets you get to right away. And you said in the article, heading into the final game of the 2023 season, the Patriots quarterback was on an island. According to team sources, the communication between Belichick and Jones was non-existent by this point. And Mac was demoted, of course, to third string quarterback. He found out he was inactive when the Patriots released the list 90 minutes before kickoff, according to a team source, you guys say. You mentioned the reps were different but during the week, but it's kind of bizarre that this would happen. So what do you think happened? Do you think this purposely they didn't tell him or it slipped through the cracks somebody was supposed to tell him and they didn't because to me no matter what you think about Mac Jones as a coaching staff and obviously as we'll get to in some of the story him and Bill the relationship seemed like it was non-existent at that point but that just seems bizarre to me that the quarterback wouldn't know that he was being demoted to the third string quarterback it it felt it felt like a parting shot you know I, I tried to dive in like was Mac not performing well in practice was there things going on behind the scenes and everyone I talked to was like oh Max handling this the right way he's showing up early he's staying late he's trying really hard in practice he's like openly rooting for Bailey Zappi and running down the field when he scores in Buffalo to like give him a hug like he's doing everything he can to show the coaches hey I'm doing this the right way so for that to end up happening in the final game him third string inactive emergency third quarterback I'd say it it caused a level of confusion and frustration because other than Bill Belichick, no one no one we talked to really could tell me exactly why that happened. I mean, it, it felt like to us, like Bill Belichick would want to wipe his hands clean of this. Like, hey, I'm done with Mac Jones. I like, you know, whatever. Nathan Rourke had a good week and we're going to roll with him. But it, it seemed like it was a decision that came before that last week. So what I'm saying is it had nothing to do with practice because during that week, 
the reps were split up that players saw Nathan Rourke was getting QB two reps. Um, so was that a, so what some people didn't know was, Hey, is this them just getting an, a longer look at Nathan Rourke? But then when the thing happened with Mac, it just, it created more, I'd say confusion to an already dysfunctional relationship. And as, as I reported, we were told Mac was so frustrated. He ends up walking over and talks to a Jeff's jet staff member to say, <laughs> Hey, I really appreciate how you guys have handled the Zach Wilson situation. And at that point, Diana Rossini reported the Jets told Zach Wilson they were planning on trading him in the offseason. Say, hey, this isn't working out. We're going to move you. This is what's going on. And I guess, you know, from what we were told, Max sort of compared to contrast that to his situation where people were not telling him anything. So, yeah, man, it, it bubbled over in, in the final week and it, it ended with, you know, Mac being left on an island and inactive. That is insane to me because he actually went over to the team they played and said, Hey, I appreciate how you guys treated your quarterback. I wonder, too, if part of it was like my assumption at the time, which obviously was wrong. You guys outlined it in the story is, hey, they're just doing this just in case, like if Zappy got hurt, they don't want to put Mac in because then what if Mac gets hurt? And maybe if you're trying to trade him in the offseason, then you have an issue there. But that obviously was not the case when it comes to it. And I also now that we're talking about, it, I wonder if this was to your point, like a last parting shot bills like hey, part of the reason I'm going to lose my job is the quarterback didn't perform, so I'm going to do this to him before I leave. Like, we know Belichick can hold a grudge, so maybe that was part of it. It's it's just wild. And, and like, when asking why, you know, honestly, one, one of the quotes I received that I put in the story was, it's a broken relationship about, between Bill and Mac at that point. Well, clearly, clearly, clearly it is since he, one, won't, won't talk to Mac, isn't talking to Mac, and two, he didn't tell him that, like, hey, you're going to be inactive and here's why. Like, you know, you, you would think that at this level at the NFL, there is communication between the coaching staff and the players telling telling someone who previously started, then was the backup, like, here's why you're getting demoted further. But that didn't happen. And with the relationship with Mac and Bill, you know, the big reason it got bad, honestly, was Matt Patricia. In 2022, when he was moving, when Bill wanted the offense to go to a West Coast system, Mac showed resistance. And, and from my understanding, asked a lot of questions. He's a big, like, why guy. Like, all right, you want us to change the offense? Why? You want me to do this differently than I did in the past? Why? Bill Belichick, mm. he's an old school coach. He wants yes, sir, no, sir, whatever I say, you know, whatever I say, you do. Like, contrastly, that that's that's Bailey Zappi, by the way. Bailey Zappi is a yes, sir, no, sir, I'll do it however you say, sir. Well, Mac Jones is more inquisitive, and Mac Jones wants to know the how and why of things. And I think it's part of the reason why it wasn't a good match. I mean, the guy came from Alabama, from Nick Saban. I'm thinking this is a great match. It wasn't. Yeah. Mac Jones was not a good match for Bill Belichick in the end. Well, and you mentioned the idea of switching to the Shanahan offense. And I find that interesting, too, because if you go back to 2021, the Patriots were 10th in EPA per play. They were fourth in success rate behind only the Chiefs, the Bucks with that Brady guy, the Packers with Aaron Rodgers, who won the MVP that season. They were fifth in drop back success rate. They were fourth in rush success rate. They also scored on 48% of their drives. Only Kansas City was better. And look, I get they were helped out by a really good defense. They were second in field position. But it felt like, oh, you're sort of on to something with the offense. Now, obviously, Josh takes the job with the Raiders, and they make the inexplicable decision of promoting Matt Patricia to the play caller. But what was the idea? Like you mentioned, Bill wanting to go to a different offense. Was it Patricia was incapable of running the type of offense that Josh ran, which, I mean, we would find out he was incapable of running any sort of offense, but why did they want to make this switch? And I get it, like, after the bye week that season, the Patriots offense 
was not as good, but it felt like for a rookie quarterback, it felt like for what the personnel was, it was it overachieved the offense. So why did they want to make a dramatic change? And I get like the Shanahan offense, it's taken over the NFL, the Shanahan McVay offense and all that. But why make a change after it felt like you were sort of onto something? Yeah, I, I think Bill was enamored with the Shanahan, you know, Sean McVay offense and long wanted. Like, I, I believe I've, I've heard from coaches in the past who said Bill has brought it up in the past, even when Brady was there. But McDaniels mm-hmm. and other coaches like Dante Skarniecki and Ivan Fears would push back like, no, we're, we're keeping the same offense with Tom. So when Josh McDaniels left, I honestly think Bill Belichick thought, all right, clean break. Let's go to a more simplistic offense. Like that was one thing players have often told us. It's really difficult. The Josh McDaniels offense is really difficult. In fact, like Chad O'Shea ran it for one year in Miami with Tua. And even O'Shea was close to Brian Flores. He lost his job because people were saying, you know what? This is too complicated for a young quarterback. So I think Bill Belichick thought that, hey, Mac Jones will be better in a more simplistic offense. And by the way, it's sort of what he ran with um, his last year at Alabama with Steve Sarkeesian. They they ran more of a West Coast scheme. So Mac Jones had success there. The problem was he put Matt Patricia and Joe Judge in charge of it. He didn't bring in an experienced coach. So like, I get what you're saying. Hey, this is the way the offense is gearing West Coast offense. Let's let's go. Like, I understand why you would be enamored with it. But man, you got to put people in charge who know what they're doing. Because that was a problem in 2022. A lot of players, not just Mac, were being like, all right, you want us to do this. But what if this happens? And guys on the roster who had been there before, say like Kendrick Bourne, Brian Hoyer, it's really easy to tell when a coach doesn't know what he's talking about or a coach doesn't have an answer. And I just think, you know, it, it got really it got really muddy there in Foxborough. Yeah, and I got to imagine that's part of the reason that Mac was asking so many questions is because the coaches didn't have answers. Like he wanted to know, hey, if this happens on this play, where am I going with the football? And at that time, the coaching staff didn't know. So that's going to be incredibly frustrating. And it's kind of crazy that Patricia is really where this whole thing started to go south between the two sides. So you also had a note in here that Mac didn't do enough to call out teammates, essentially, when things went wrong. You said the quarterback was described as happy-go-lucky. One source, he was part of the problem as far as what he was doing. He was, he, he character-wise, he's not a bad character, but as a guy that wasn't quite the leader of the group, he just wanted to be one of the guys. So is this basically like when Brady was there, and look, comparing anybody to Brady, I get it, it sounds ridiculous, but any quarterback that's like calling out his guys saying, you have to be in this position, like Mac just didn't have the personality to be able to do that? Yeah, he was he wasn't. Like you 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 hit the nail on the head there because with Tom Brady, people who ran the wrong route heard about it instantly. Tom would just scream. You know, Robert Gronkowski famously said, I thought Tom Brady hated me. No, it's because Rob was running the wrong routes in practice as a rookie. And Tom wanted Rob to be at a certain place exactly when he, you know, thought he should be. So like in the McDaniels offense, a quarterback drops back, you're supposed to know where the receiver's going to be. It's a really like they have to run precision routes. Right. You need, if it's a 10 yard curl, it has to be a 10 yard curl at a certain spot. And when that wasn't happening with the Patriots this past year, Mac was not doing enough vocally. And like part of the Patriots issue over the last two years with the receivers is they were running the wrong routes, but the wrong route depth. Things were off. And what we were told by multiple sources is that Mac wasn't lighting what letting up players like he should have. Like he needed to take on a more a bigger role when it came to, hey, I want you to be here because I'm expecting you to be here. And it, and it came to the point last season where Mac was getting frustrated because when he would throw the ball, guys weren't where they were supposed to be. So it's like, all right, I understand why you're frustrated. But man, you, you, a captain, the starting quarterback, you have to raise your voice. You have to get on these guys. I understand, you know, you're friends with them. But man, it goes beyond that when you're a captain. And we were told by multiple people about this. And Mac sort of like 
lack of leadership. And I don't I don't want to make Max sounds like a bad guy. Like people like him. He just wasn't doing enough, you know, to call people out. Like there were problems on offense with like pass protecting and, and route running and went beyond the quarterback. But as a leader, yeah, man, if Tom Brady was on the Patriots last year, a lot of people would have got aired out. Yeah, you you would think so, especially with the way that Brady would handle especially young receivers. So yeah, that's an interesting component to it as well. And you can see like Mac, he's a fiery competitor, but maybe he just didn't have that to your point and the people you talked to. He just didn't have the ability to tell somebody like you can't be doing this. He didn't want to be that guy that created the controversy, so to speak. So I did think another thing in here that was really interesting to me is basically because of the issues they had, as you mentioned, you talked to a bunch of sources, the fact that the protection was not good and the separation was not good. You'd see Mac sort of freelancing and if you look at it you think about the issue in terms of the receivers Mac threw into tight windows 18.6 percent of the time the fifth highest rate and with Zappi it was at 19.8 percent the second highest rate so that tells you that guys aren't getting open right so you look at the 115 qualifiers Parker was last in separation out of 115 Henry 103 Juju your big money guy 99th so essentially you had guys that couldn't get open you had a line that had issues protecting the quarterback. So what happened is Mac basically tried to take it into his own hands and overcompensate. And so he's not a he's not the quarterback you want, especially to freelance, right? He's a prototypical pocket quarterback. But so is that what happened instead of Mac? So Mac got like sort of so aggravated with guys weren't in the right spots. He wasn't getting the protection. He essentially tried to do too much. He, he essentially broke, played completely outside his skill set, was freelancing from O'Brien's system and doing things he was being told not to do. And really, it was out of frustration. Like, he started struggling mentally, really. I was told, like, I knew something was up because the first three weeks, Mac Jones is, like, top 10 in the NFL, passing yards, touchdowns, numbers were a little inflated. But then all of a sudden, they get blown out by the Cowboys and Saints. And I'm like, how do you go from the first three weeks of being solid statistically, just looking horrible? Like something's going on. So I started asking questions. And one of the first things I was told is, well, Mac is starting to struggle mentally when players are messing up around him. And when I ask more, it's like, well, when guys are running the wrong routes or dropping balls or someone's not passporting, Mac is trying to do things to make up for it. And he's trying to do too much. So yeah, Mac Jones, essentially his, his brain sort of broke here. Like, all right, this guy didn't pass block correctly. Instead of taking a sack or throwing the ball away, he's throwing across his body, throwing off his back foot. If a guy doesn't run the right route, you don't need to just toss it up there or again, throw across your body or off your back foot. You need to throw the ball away. You need to sometimes just take the sack. And little things like that just stopped happening. But really, the, the big thing, and I don't want to make it sound like an excuse for Mac Jones, there were so many things going on wrong around him that Mac Jones in himself just played outside of his skill set. So do you think the two things are related where you mentioned earlier the fact that he wasn't calling out teammates and then it got to the point where the mistakes just kept happening. So Mac's last resort was to freelance and that if he actually did get on guys earlier, whether it was in training camp during the preseason, if he started that at that time, then maybe some of these issues don't present itself. Yeah, yeah, I think I think it plays into it. I think in, in some ways, Mac was thrusted into like a leadership role a bit too soon. And that's because of his position, right? You're the quarterback, you're a starter, mm -hmm. you have to be the captain. But I think you talk to people down there, he probably shouldn't have been a captain. He just, he wasn't ready for that. And, and, and to your point, when you're not calling out people, but you're getting frustrated by the mistakes they're making, it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Like, all right, you're mad that this receiver is supposed to be running a nine yard out route and he's not, well, man, hey man, you got to do something about it. And like, 
it was interesting when I, I heard about this because there was a point this season where Mac actually said it behind a podium, like, oh, I really need to get on guys more. And so I hear that stuff. And I'm like, oh, Mac recognized it. Like, that's a lot of thing I've heard about Mac too. Like he recognized a lot of his faults after the fact. It just, it didn't happen when it needed to happen for him. What what do you know about like the fact that we heard Mac in the offseason talking about, even during the season, he said RPOs are cool. He talked about play action and they barely used RPOs and they barely used the play action pass game. Was that from Bill O'Brien's perspective? Was that personnel based or they just didn't incorporate those things? Because that's one of the things that I was excited about when they brought O'Brien back. Like they kept talking about the RPO game, the play action game, and it wasn't there. Yeah, I think part of it was personnel based and really there were issues in training camp with their pass protection. They knew they had a problem at right tackle and there became this sort of shift in what they were doing, even in practice and camp. Like all of a sudden they were working on like a much more like quick game pass type passes, like short game, quick, like, oh, wow, we can't pass block. So Mac has to get rid of the ball even quicker. They really they wanted to hammer on the run with Ramondre Stevenson, but their offensive line was just so poorly put together. They couldn't even do that. So like I'm sure there was a point where Mac thought, yeah, We'll do some of the stuff we did. I did in college. And I'm really excited about it. I think Bill O'Brien was really held back, though, because of the players on the roster. Like an element of Mac Jones breaking, is you have to talk about the offensive line. Like they didn't have a caliber, starting caliber right tackle for two years until Bill Belichick reluctantly put Michael Wenu out there at right tackle. Like Bill really wanted Wenu to be his right guard because he thought he could be, you know, all pro, pro bowl type, which I get. The problem is, they didn't have a quality right tackle. And, and that really messes up what you can do offensively. And then also the, there were other injuries. Like Owenu was injured to start the season. So we have Antonio Mafi and City So, all these different guys starting. And it, just, it didn't work. And it, it it just, it caused issues. And I think that's part of the reason why Bill O'Brien didn't do some of that fun stuff we thought he might do. Yeah. And with the run game specifically, like they got off to such a slow start there. And Ramondre in particular, I don't know if he's banged up or whatever, but before he got injured at the end of the season, he was running the ball like crazy. He was running the ball very efficiently. So did they find something or is it just Ramondre was better? Because I, I don't know, he didn't, I, it felt like at the beginning of the season, he just didn't have the burst that he had last season. So I don't know if he was just dealing with something, he was banged up. But if we got that Ramondre at the beginning of the season, maybe you see a better offense because, and I'm not blaming Ramondre. I mean, he's obviously one of the guys you want to keep around with this organization, but I don't know, maybe there was something there with Ramondre that he just wasn't himself at the beginning of the year, even though, like, obviously he wasn't getting holes made for him with the offensive line. They, uh, he had, and I forget what it was, he had a surgery in the offseason, and the Patriots were planning on leaning on him so much, they actually dialed back his workload. Like, he didn't play in the preseason, I don't believe, and right. his reps in training camp were actually limited. I wonder if it backfired, right? Because he came out of the gate so slow, I said to myself, you know what, probably would have been better if you gave him more reps in practice in the summer. But the issue in 2022 with him is that he broke down by the end of the season. I think if you look at the final two games, he rushed the ball like only 17 combined times, and he was by far their offensive player. So the Patriots, you know, they signed Zeke Elliott. They're giving him less reps in practice, but they did that hoping it would make him last, and it didn't happen. He started slow, and the offensive line was a big part of that. Like, things settled down with Uenua at right tackle. It also settled down when City So got more reps and sort of worked his way into right guard. But then all of a sudden he gets hurt anyways, right? So like the, pan, the plan for Ramondre and leaning on him, it completely backfired. I feel bad. I was telling all my friends to draft him in fantasy. They still remind <laughs> me about that. 
<laughs> Mark, hey, remember when you told me to draft Ramondre and I lost in fantasy? I'm like, yeah, yeah, same, man, same. <laughs> yeah, this is the one. I drafted Mahomes, and I'm like, okay, this is going to be great. I got Pat Mahomes as my quarterback. He's He was terrible from a fantasy perspective this year. Obviously, yeah. the guy's about to play in the Super Bowl. He's awesome. But yeah, it, that's a great point, though, on maybe Ramondre wasn't, not to say that he wasn't in shape, but he hadn't built up the necessary endurance to go through a season because they were using like to the NBA cliche, the load management stuff in the offseason and or I should say in training camp in the preseason, maybe just wasn't ready at the beginning of the season. So that's a good point. Maybe that was part of it. So you also mentioned the decision to sign Juju instead of bringing back Jacoby Myers, who had good chemistry with Mac Jones, especially considering Juju was coming off an injury that everybody knew about that. So did they just believe that either Myers wasn't that good and he wasn't worth the contract that the Raiders were giving him or and also like part of it I'm thinking to myself they're obviously at that point they're in they're looking at whether it's Mac whether it's Bailey Zappi whoever it is like they're looking at a young quarterback did they just think that the chemistry that Mac had with Jacoby Myers didn't matter like because you would think that working with the guy for two years and you're trying to figure out because obviously he's coming off the rough 2022 If he is going to be the quarterback of your future, you want all the advantages you can possibly have. So to me, that was a head scratcher to begin with. But what did they think with Jacoby Myers? They just think he was not as good of a player as he showed in Vegas. I'll be honest. I don't know if they thought about Mac Jones at all with their roster moves over the last Mm. two years. And that was part of the problem. Part of that, too, was like Kendrick Bourne being benched in 2022. He was also close and had a good connection with Mac Jones. Like sitting Kendrick Bourne and playing Nelson Aguilar and Tyquan Thornton was not good for Mac Jones. So then Mac Jones, yeah, he's close with Jacoby Myers off the field. Uh, but on the field, his connection, they were it was top-notch. They thought Juju Smith-Schuster was better. Um, they thought yards after the catch that give him an element that Jacoby Myers lacked. They thought they were bringing someone in who more closely resembled a number one receiver. It, you know, it, it, it just really blew up in their face. You know, his, his knee, in, I, I understand, like, all right, he suffered a knee injury. We think he can rehab through it and he'll be fine. Well, he wasn't. And on top of that, I was told, like, his even his, like, route detail – he wasn't as solid as of a route runner, as detailed as a route runner as Jacoby Myers was. Like it's third and seven. Mac Jones always knew where Jacoby was, and that's why he was like his leading third down receiver. He, the, the, you know, he trusted him. They weren't getting that with Juju. Part of it, sure, was the knee, but part of it, it, he's just a different player. You know, it's like all right, Jacoby's not the fastest guy, but he's very detailed when it comes to route running, and his hands are so solid. They just they gambled. I think they overthought it. Oh wow, look at Juju and look at his past numbers. Sure, 900 yards, but it's with Pat Mahomes. And what he had, what, over 1,200 yards his second year in the Steelers? But that was a long time ago. Brady was still in New England, you know, when that happened. So it was it was ultimately a gamble. They they thought they were upgrading the roster. They thought the same thing with Mike Gusecki. Hey, he's going to be better than Jonu Smith. Hey, we have upgrades here with Juju and Mike Gusecki. You know, th- this will help Mac Jones. But they weren't thinking like, well, you know what else help him also, will also help Mac Jones? As if his one of his close friends in top third down back, you know, third third down target remains in New England. So like, I mean, I'll tell you, I don't think they thought about Mac at all with those moves. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that would make sense. And the other thing I would say in terms of Juju is like, okay, yeah, the yak, the yak stuff is great, but did you evaluate the knee properly? Because there wasn't a big market for Juju Smith-Schuster, right? So I just wonder about, did you overlook the knee issue that he had? Because obviously that was a big, and I'm not making excuses for Juju. I'm not the biggest fan of Juju considering what the Patriots paid him. But obviously the knee was an issue. Like he did not look like the same athlete that he did the previous season. Now, hopefully he can be decent the next couple of years because you signed him to this contract. But I wonder from an injury perspective, if they 
sort of underrated the injury aspect of that and overrated the player. I think that I, could be yeah. part of it too. And I think part of it, it's, it's a, there was a, like under Bill Belichick, there was an issue when it came to evaluating wide receivers. You know, people have talked about the Nikhil Harry draft a lot, but I think we saw this too when DeAndre Hopkins visited the Patriots in the summer. I mean, I was told by a team source that after Hopkins signed with the Titans, that the Patriots didn't necessarily think they even needed him. Like, honestly, they thought they did enough with Juju and Mike said. <laughs> and like to think about like, wow, you picked Juju, you know, Smith Schuster over Jacoby Myers. And then essentially you say, yeah, you know what? DeAndre Hopkins, although it would be nice, we don't think we need them. Like kind of shows you right there that something was broken inside that system or inside the building when it came to analyzing these guys. And then the team goes and they extend Devontae Parker, who doesn't oh. hit 400 yards and, and doesn't catch a touchdown. Like, and like, from what I heard, they love Devontae Parker in that building, you know, at least last year. It's like, what is consistently broken down here when it comes to evaluating these receivers? Cause they consistently made the wrong, wrong decisions. Yeah, it's a great point because this is like a rare situation where, uh, excuse me, DeAndre Hopkins should have never wanted to play for the Patriots or the Titans. But because like most of these other contenders either felt pretty good about their receiving core, like the Bengals, and I know they're obviously not contenders, but they were entering the season. If they were healthy, they're like, okay, we have T Higgins, we have Jamar Chase, we don't really need him. The Chiefs are dealing with salary cap issues. The Bills were dealing with salary cap issues. So all these other teams like, they couldn't get him in the building and you could have had him. And all you have to do was pay him more money than the Titans. That to me is the most aggravating one because, all right, even if he doesn't fit the timeline in terms of an age, just get better players into the building. So I couldn't believe that. Like he he was at the facility for two days, right? He's like yeah. visiting the visiting with Bill. Yeah, had dinner with Mac and other players. He was there, you know, taking photos with like Matthew Judon and all these guys. And nope, didn't give him as much guaranteed money as, as the Titans did. They just... They, they honestly, they, the Patriots thought they would be better with, you know, Smith Schuster, Gusecki and Bill O'Brien. They thought Bill O'Brien would fix a lot of their problems. But when your offensive line breaks down, your receivers aren't great. And your, your quarterback, I guess, was continuously broken from 2022. Nothing was going to fix it. No offensive coordinator was going to come in and be like, Hey, yeah, I can, I can turn this into that. Like wasn't going to happen in New England. What do you think happened with O'Brien? Do you think he just wanted to get out that's why he got that ohio state job like his job wasn't secure now that they had a new head coach so he's like i better take care of this myself because then i could just be standing here without a gig yeah i, I think there was a point in time where i think they thought all right if gerard mayo was the head coach bill o'brien will be the oc but it came to a point where they were going to interview external candidates regardless if he wanted to come back like he would have been given a chance to keep his job but on top of that it's not a good job right both yeah. their starting tackles are free agents. You don't have a number one receiver. You don't have a quarterback. You have no veteran tight ends under contract. You have one running back. It's it's a horrible job right now. So like from Bill O'Brien's perspective, do I stay here to rebuild this situation or do I go to Ohio State? You know, I, I think at the end of the day, he took the better job. And and also he wasn't necessarily guaranteed to keep his job. I, things changed over there. And I, I really believe they're going to run a West Coast system. I was talking to, honestly, one player the other week. I'm like, have you heard anything about the OC? And the only thing this player told me was like, I heard we're going to a West Coast system, which makes sense considering the amount of candidates from those systems they're interviewing. But yeah, man, I think he took the better job and sort of saw the writing on the wall there. Well, and for a couple of reasons, too, because I think about going to Ohio State, Ryan Dayla can't beat Michigan right now. He's lost, what, three right. consecutive games to Michigan. And now Harbaugh leaves to go to the NFL. He's with the Chargers. And I know O'Brien made the decision before that, but everybody kind of knew that Harbaugh was coming back to the NFL. 
So if Ohio State gets over the hump and they get to the playoff, I feel like he's going to get a lot of credit for that. And Ryan Day is not going to get as much credit. And Ryan Day, he's had his own controversies lately with Lou Holtz, but I'm with you. It's a better job and maybe it, it lands him a better job in the future as well. Okay, so you also mentioned you had an article up today about the possibility of trading Mac. Yeah. Do you think there's any value around the league? Like, what do you think you could get for Mac? I, if if they're lucky, I think they would jump at a fourth round pick. If if they're lucky, if someone really looks at the situation and says, you know what, we need a better backup quarterback, someone with high up, upside, we're willing to take on a chance and try to revitalize Mac, maybe a fourth. I think more likely you're looking at a fifth, and I'm sure teams would give up a sixth. My question with Mac Jones being traded for the Patriots is, will they just give him away? I, I don't think so. Like, if it's a sixth or seventh round pick, I could see them keeping Mac on the roster and seeing how things shake out in the summer. Do people get hurt in the preseason? You know, who needs a quarterback by August? But I, I really think they'll, you know, look and entertain offers over the next couple of months. I know the Patriots want to get more draft assets. They don't have an extra draft pick, I think, until the sixth round this year. And you're a team that lacks blue chip prospects. So they're probably hoping fourth round pick for Mac. I don't know if, if you get that. You know, well, hell, well, the Rams love trading draft picks. Well, Sean McVay bring in Mac Jones to back up Matthew Stafford. I think that'd be a great, great, you know, opportunity for Mac Jones. Everyone talks about Kyle Shanahan. Do you really want Mac Jones to back up Brock Purdy? I don't know. You know, I, I go back and forth in that. But I think there's value in a backup quarterback. As we saw this year, what was it? Over a dozen teams started backup quarterbacks. It was ridiculous at one point. There were like eight backups starting in one week. So there'll be teams who like the thought of having Mac as a backup. Trading them, though, I think it comes down to, you know, the, the big question of asset, what asset it is. Yeah, and I think that would actually be really good for Mac if he ended up with McVay, because we think about, look at Baker Mayfield. He went there for, what, a couple of weeks. He rehabbed yeah. his image, and now he was the starting quarterback of the Bucks who are in the playoffs. And I would be shocked if the Bucks don't have him back next season. I'm not saying he's going to get top of the market money, but he'll probably get a two-year deal with a decent amount of money. So that'd be a perfect situation for Mac. For Mac and Stafford always gets hurt. So he'd probably get to start a couple of games during that as well. So he could rehab his image there. So with the third overall pick, do you think there's any chance they don't go quarterback? I, I've already convinced myself, like you have to go quarterback considering who knows where you're going to be drafting next season. Like this is the most important pick that the Patriots are probably have had since they drafted Tom Brady. I just feel like whether it's Drake May or Jaden Daniels, I like both those guys. I and look now I get it. If like, Somebody in the front office like really doesn't like one of the two quarterbacks. Okay, but I don't know. I, I just feel like they have to just restart this thing. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. It's like it's weird because we don't know if there's going to be a GM or who's running the draft. We don't know who the OC or the quarterbacks coach is. But like honestly, man, I, I think it's quarterback at number three. Whether it's Jaden Daniels or Drake May, you're right. They may never be this high in the draft again. You don't know. Like the worst thing that could happen is like, you know what? We're going to sign Kirk Cousins or Baker Mayfield and you win eight to 10 games and you're fine. But in two years when Kirk Cousins is done or, you know, three years when Baker's done, you're you're starting the process all over again. You have a chance to add a high upside quarterback. I don't even care if it's Mayor Daniels, although I am partial to the last name Daniels because that would make my Christmas shopping so much easier for my son. Uh, you know, I'm really, I'm really, really rooting for that. But I think the Patriots are, I, I almost want to guarantee quarterback in number three. It's it just right. High upside is the way to go. And I get if you swing and miss on, on this pick, Gerard Mayo might not be here in four years. But I think it's a risk you have to take because the easiest way to get your NFL team back to the promised land is hitting on a franchise quarterback in the draft. Right. I Yeah. I love Marvin Harrison Jr. too. But I'm like, really, would Baker and Marvin Harrison Jr. do much for you? I don't know. You know, 
give me, give me, give me, roll the dice, you know, gamble, gamble on it. Give me Drake Mayer, Jaden Daniels. Yeah, I'm completely with you. I mean, just think about it. I've mentioned this on the pod before. Nick Casario probably still has his job because of CJ Stroud. If they right. had drafted Bryce Young, I get it. That would have been a gamble. Like he doesn't have his job. But the fact that they took the quarterback, that's why he essentially is still employed by the Houston Texans, because things were getting a little bit dicey there, especially with all the coaching turnover. And we mentioned the front office there with Elliot Wolf and Matt Groh. Are you surprised at the way they've handled this situation? Because it feels like to me, it's almost like, well, Bill was the problem, but all these guys have been part of the front office that hasn't been very good with personnel decisions. Are you surprised they haven't done more work on trying to bring somebody else in from the outside? Yeah. And, and over at Mass Lab, we, we were told that like popular candidates were interested in this job. Veteran candidates mm. were interested in this job. There are people who would come be a GM for the Patriots. Believe me, there are, there are a lot of them. And there are people in the NFL who are surprised how the Patriots are even handling this. So I think this has to end with guy like Elliot Wolf, you know, leading the front office or, or macro. They kind of did it backwards, though, right? You hired the head coach before the GM, right. which does make me wonder if Mayo is on board with a guy like Elliot Wolf. I am surprised, though, because I thought they'd even bring in like a senior advisor like Dave Ziegler, John Robinson, even go old school, go Scott, Pio Scott Pioli, like bring in someone to sort of advise this transition here. And a part of the equation, there are a bunch of guys in the front office who their contracts are up after the draft. You know, which plays into mm. it. And I think if Bill Belichick goes to Atlanta, like I wouldn't be surprised if some of those guys followed him. Like Macro, like Macro was a big Bill Bel Bill Bel Belichick guy, you know, Macro. They're like very tight. I would have thought that Macro would have went to Atlanta. So now that Bill's not there, you know, does does Macro and Elliot Wolf do they stay? Do they still bring in someone? It's just it would be really strange to go through the entire process to draft someone and then hire someone else to run it, you know, it, it's, it's bizarre. So yeah, I'm shocked, I, which makes me believe it has to be someone like Elliot Wolf. Yeah. I just can't get the macro press conference out of my head. <laughs> you want fast guys, you draft Taekwon. Like I just, I can't get that thing out of my head. But the other thing is I remember like when this whole thing started, you're thinking to yourself, well, San Francisco has been really good at drafting and developing. I mean, save the Trey Lance pick every, every other move they make has sort of worked out like you didn't even talk to Adam Peters like he was considered to be the number one guy and to what Kraft wants there is a Patriots connection there so they didn't even like talk to Adam Peters and obviously he's running the Washington organization now but I felt like at least talk to the guy at least talk to other people right and so do you think it's still possible you mentioned some of those names Pioli Dave Ziegler guys that have been with the organization in the past do you think that's still a possibility that eventually they bring somebody in? Yeah, I keep sort of expecting like something something like that to happen to just sort of help them usher in a new era. I think they need a new, you know, they need a new voice in there. And Dave Ziegler, he was around the Patriots for a while. He was really only running that show back in 2021. And I like that draft. I get it started with Mac Jones, but also landing Christian Barmore and Ramondre Stevenson was huge. And that was the big free agent year for the Pats. They had some swings and misses, John Smith and Nelson Aguilar. But they also hit on Kendrick Bourne, Hunter Henry, and Matthew Judon. I, I'd also say Jalen Mills was, was a good sign, too. And Dave Ziegler, he's very aggressive. And I know he played a part in that offseason. So just from knowing him and his background, I, I think they should definitely add someone like Ziegler to the mix. It just it's it's weird for me because like there's a part of me that understands like, all right, your your scouting team, your staff has done all this work for this draft and you want to keep those pieces in place for a very important draft pick. I get it. 
But also, there could be a new voice in here pretty soon. And don't you want him sooner than later? Like, they're at the Senior Bowl right now. They're at the East-West yeah. Shrine Week, like, right now. Wouldn't you want that guy here? Like, it's it's bizarre. The whole thing is a little, a little backwards to me. Yeah, I'm with you. And with Ziegler specifically, I know that they didn't do a great job there with the Raiders. But there was some reporting there that he didn't want Garoppolo, like McDaniels right. did, right? And, like, he wanted to trade up, I believe, for Stroud. And, look, who knows if they could get up there, but... Like, he was not on board, apparently, with the Garoppolo thing. So, from my perspective, if you are going to bring Ziggler in, that would be a check mark for him. Like, that's yeah. that, that would be a good thing. All right, so, as far as the offensive coordinator situation, I know Clint Kubiak is going to come in, Scott Turner, and it feels like, to me, is it just going to be Nick Cayley? I mean, it feels like all signs are sort of pointing to that, but do you think there's a, like, what percent chance would you put it at that Cayley's the guy? I think Kaylee's a guy, um, and I'll be honest, I, I know people that have worked with him. I don't know if they're still employed at the team, but guys, coaches that have worked for the Patriots with Nick Kaylee really like Nick Kaylee and have been pushing for him, rooting for him. Like People are very vocal about how much they like Nick Kaylee. He's super smart. He's personable. He works extremely hard. He's done everything the right way. I know out in Los Angeles, you know, he's really enjoyed working for Sean McVay, and people out there like him. Like He's a very likable guy, and there were people in 2022 who were rubbed the wrong way that he didn't get the job that they thought he should have replaced Josh McDaniel. So I get, I get it from Gerard Mayo's standpoint. Hey, I worked with this guy. I like this guy guys who I work with like this guy. I get it. So like, I think that's where they're going. I, I do wonder, does that, does that mean, are you, are you having him run the McVay system after working under McVay for one year? Are you going to go back to the McDaniels thing, which it seems like you're trying to get away from because it's too complicated. So like, if it is Mick, if it is Nick Cayley, which I, I kind of think it is, that would be my guess. I wonder who they also bring in to help them. I, I think they're going to bring in some type of veteran OC or you know offensive minded guy to be an advisor. I think they'll bring in someone to work with the quarterback specifically. I think they could set it up around Nick Cayley to help him as a first year OC. So you know, like like we've thrown a name out Josh McDaniels a lot, right? But would Josh McDaniels come to the Patriots in an advisor role and just oversee it? Maybe, you know, we mentioned the name, you know, like Scott Turner and what Luke Getzey is another one. Like, all right, would you hire guys like that just to coach quarterbacks, just to have another voice? Like, I think there's ways they could make it work. What's unknown to me is like, how much are you going to have Nick run a completely new system after only being in Los Angeles for one year? Yeah, that's interesting. And I do like the point you make about Kaylee originally in 2022, because that's what I liked about promoting Covington, where it's like, okay, he's worked hard. Guys like him on the staff. He should be rewarded instead of Nick Cayley, who it felt like he was sort of could be the next great Patriots assistant, right? Be like a good coordinator for them. And they decided to go with Patricia. But to your point about Josh, do you think like if they did bring Josh in and sort of an advisor role, do you think because of his resume and how much success he's had with the Patriots, it would be sort of too much for Cayley if you're giving him the offensive coordinator position that there could be like, well, hey, Josh wants to do it this way. Kaylee wants to do it that way. Do you think that could, and even like to a lesser extent, Mayo, right? Who's the head coach? It's like McDaniels has been a head coach in two different destinations. Do you think that could be an issue? I'm, I don't know Josh's personality enough. Like obviously as a head coach, he's rubbed people the wrong way, but I wonder if he would do that as an advisor. Yeah, and I, I think there's something there, but also he's a Belichick loyalist. How much does it play into the fact that like, there are people who are probably rubbed the wrong way how it ended with Bill in New England and where those people want to come and work for the new head coach, Gerard Mayo. I wouldn't be surprised if they didn't want to. Like, and, and I wouldn't be surprised if Josh was like, ah, I want to be loyal to Bill. But also, if you don't have a job, what choice do you have? 
I think Josh could work with someone like Nick Haley because they've worked together before. I don't think that'd be a problem. I think the problem would come if you hired like Gerard Johnson, the QB coach of the Texans, and then also had Josh there, someone who's never worked with them and there's no background. Mm -hmm. Like how much also would Josh McDaniels be hanging over someone's head? It was like, hey, if I mess up, my replacement could be on the staff, right? Like that, that could also yeah. be an awkward situation. Yeah, you're certainly right on that. I mean, we just saw that happen in the NBA with a head coach and Doc Rivers came in and decided he was working as a consultant. Then he took over there. But yeah, you're completely right on that. He could look at that as here's my replacement. All right, Mark, before we let you go, were you surprised that Bill Belichick didn't get a job? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's Bill Belichick, you know, greatest head coach in NFL history. You know, the felt like I, I honestly figured, all right, he's he's only interviewed with the Falcons. I thought partly it was because that was the job he wanted and that was the job he thought he would get. So for this cycle to go to almost be over, him to not have a job is is absolutely shocking. I think in a lot of ways, what, what hurts him is not him as a head coach, it's him as the GM. It's him running the personnel department because since Tom Brady left, the Patriots, you know, haven't been as good. You know, finished under 500 three out of the last four years. There were issues with drafting, free agency, the players they were trading for, and certainly when it came to developing a quarterback and building your offense. So the, like, if you're an owner, you're hesitant about handing the, the entire keys to the castle to Bill Belichick. And the, I think there was a report out there, was it from Yahoo, that said that they had some hesitancy on, yeah, Bill taking over the entire football ops department, which I guess reportedly he wanted to do. Like, I think if Bill Belichick was willing to work with another GM and be the head coach, he'd have a job. Right. But I understand from the standpoint of, well, his, tra his recent track record as a GM isn't great, which is maybe why he gave some teams pause. Yeah. I wonder what he's going to do now, because it felt like in that press conference that him and Kraft had the mutual parting of the ways, even though it wasn't really a mutual parting of the ways. It felt like Bill felt pretty good, like the way that he was carrying himself. I know that he was very emotional about his time with the Patriots, but I really thought like at that point he knew he was getting a job. I just wonder how much Harbaugh factored into this, right? Because he, of course... He gets the Chargers job. Now, it's been reported that, like, the Titans would want Vrabel. But Vrabel may even be out of the equation now. Like, I can't ima like, imagine that. Vrabel may na not get a job because I know Washington really likes Ben Johnson. And if you're Vrabel, would you really want that Seattle job? Like, they don't, they have, I know Geno's a veteran guy, but you don't really have a great roster. To me, if I'm Vrabel, I'm like, well, the Bills, the Eagles, or the Cowboys could all open up. Like, I would wait if I was him. Yeah, and, and I wonder, you know, there are all these stories about, control over in Tennessee did he did he connect with the GM did he want too much control maybe that factors into it right like maybe it's all about control and who will work with who but about Belichick too like Robert Kraft made it seem like Bill Belichick Robert Kraft even said it's going to be weird seeing him in a different hoodie next year yeah. <laughs> like Gerard, Gerard Mayo said like oh I've offered Steve Belichick and Brian Belichick a chance to return but they have the chance to go work for their father so even Gerard Mayo and Robert Kraft thought Bill Belichick would have landed one of these jobs yeah, and now that you bring it up, what do you think happens with Steven? Do you think Steve gets a defensive coordinator job somewhere else? Because is he just going to want to be like the, what is it? The what, What's the title you said again? Like the senior assistant oh, or yeah. something? Like associate, like, or assistant yeah, like with now that Covington's the defensive coordinator, like maybe he goes somewhere else and gets a DC job. Do you think he's back? I mean, it's, it's a great question. Him and Mayo are honestly really close. Like that, that all that reporting has been true. They're really tight. They really get along. So they've worked well. Like together, like Mayo come, came up with the game plan. Steve Belichick called the plays, and that's how they worked, and it, and it worked for him. Um, as a part of me that thinks like Steve should get out and go somewhere else, and you know he's he's a good coach, but obviously in New England, your last name is Belichick. You know what everyone's going to think about. But it wouldn't surprise me if those guys 
return. Like, especially Brian Belichick, he's a safeties coach. The safeties group has been always good. Those players have always developed. Yeah. I know, like, they would love to have him back in that role. So I think, like, put the odds on it. I think Brian Belichick will be back. I'm just, I don't have a good, I don't have a good touch on, like, the Steve Belichick stuff. Like, all right, come back as the assistant head coach. But what does that do for you? Like, right? Like, go somewhere else, be like a, a DC, or I, I think that would be what's best for his career. But his dad didn't land in Atlanta. So, you know, who knows what opportunities will even be there for him. All right, that is Mark Daniels from Mass Live. Mark, thank you so much for the time. Really appreciate it. Congrats on the great story. Thanks, Brian. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, File a claim right on the State Farm mobile app and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now is producer extraordinaire Jamie McClellan. Jamie, what's going on, man? I'm chilling, Brian. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. So I wanted to run this by you because I did our buddy Callahan's podcast, Mm. Andrew Callahan, of course, Pat's Interference Pod, frequent guest of our pod. Yeah, he's a great dude, and he had this question lined up where it was essentially suggest Bill's next job. So in terms of this offseason, not like his next coaching job because it doesn't appear he's going to get that. Callahan had an outstanding idea. Like, I wanted him to be part of one of the pregame shows and go on the Bill Simmons pod, right? Go on the boss's pod, do that, and also be involved, like, have some affiliation with a team, like a consultant, like Doc Rivers was a consultant right. for the Bucks. So that was my idea. I had a three three piece job for him, or three jobs: the BS Pod, Bill Simmons Podcast, and then the pregame show, and then be a consultant, so we could at least have some rumors, like, "Oh, the Eagles stink." Nick Sirianni <laughs> is he going to keep the job? Okay, Callahan comes up with a great idea. Now, some of them were similar to me. But how about this? Remember how we all now I had a password, but most people had to buy Peacock if they wanted to watch the NFL. They didn't already have it because Peacock only had two games this season in the NFL. Amazon Prime is totally different because we had Amazon Prime all season to watch the Thursday night games. And most people have Amazon Prime because it's Amazon Prime. You're buying stuff off Amazon. Right. But the point being with Peacock, Callahan came up with this idea, which is it would be a great business venture for NBC. You hire Belichick, and for the Sunday night game, you have, like, the Manning broadcast that the Mannings have for the Monday night game. You put him on Peacock, and you bring in his his suggestion was the McCourties. So, because Devin's Ooh. already at NBC. Right. You bring those guys in, and I said on the show to Callahan, Jason McCourty is, like, a rising star in the broadcast yeah. world. Like, he's really good. There's not a ton of great game day analysts now. I think Olsen's awesome, although we'll see what happens with him now with Brady stepping in, but I thought that Jason McCourty, the game that I watched, the Dolphins and the Chiefs, I didn't know he was going to be calling that game. It was one of the, remember the game that the Chiefs beat the Dolphins early in the season? 
Mm-hmm. Uh, he was what he was on yeah. that broadcast and he was really good. So I'm like, OK, that makes a lot of sense. Or the other thing is like throw one of the McCordy's in and get Saban to join Belichick every week. <laughs> because yeah. think about how cool that. Remember yeah, when cool. Romo took remember when Romo took over and he was like calling everything out, like when he first came into the NFL. Yeah. Imagine like Bill talking about like this is what's going to happen or that's what's going to happen. This is why that happened. I think that would be awesome, like for an alternate opportunity to watch bill belichick like i think it would actually do well so i love that idea by callahan um i am with you in terms of i'd much rather see him on tv during the games than the pregame shows pregame shows i could care less what they say it's just like blah 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 but yeah him actually analyzing games would be good when you when you brought up the the manning cast i was like i i call me old school but i like the traditional the the play-by-play and the car guy i want i want bill just to be a car guy but but then you mention Nick Saban, and I think about them just kicking it, chumming, you know, two guys in their 70s. That could be pretty fun. I like this idea. Yeah, because they can tell stories, too, like things yeah. they were thinking in certain games. And the other portion of that is just the fact that the reason I don't want him to be like a, a game day analyst, like a Romo or like a Greg mm-hmm. Wilson, or, uh, Greg Olson, rather, or... Troy Aikman is, I don't think he has the energy to do that. Not that he he's not energetic, but like the personality, I mean. Like he's not going to be like, oh, look at that. Look at that, Jim. You know what I mean? He doesn't have that yeah. in him. Like, so I think he'd be better in that setting where it's sort of he's controlling it. it you know what I mean? That could be Brian. I wonder what they could do. I mean, it's not the crazy idea because you were talking about Peacock. I'm like, well, they already have the rights to the games for the next 10 years. But like you said, I mean, ESPN just added a second broadcast of the same game. Yeah, and it hasn't hurt them in terms of ratings. They still do really well. I wonder, though, if you're being honest, do you think Bill, I feel like he would rather coach like a like a high school team and just be coaching than be on TV, don't you think? He probably wants to coach, but I will say this, like if he wants to get a job again, not that he has to prove anything, he has all the rings, he's got the eight rings, right. counting the Giants rings, but if teams see him like breaking all the shit down, like an owner's going to be like, we need to get Belichick, you know what I mean? Yeah, it keeps them on top of the radar. That's true, high profile. All right, Jamie. Good stuff, man. Thank you, Brian. All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in 617-396-7172. Email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Sturdy for producing this podcast, and we'll talk in a couple of days. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com RG in Colorado, Iowa, Kentucky, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, Vermont, and Virginia. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text NEXT STEP to 53342 in Arizona. 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut. 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana. 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas. 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana. Visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland. Visit 1800gambler.net in West Virginia or call one 800 522 4700 in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gamblinghelplinema.org 
or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts or call 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY in New York.